0: Thank you for downloading the weekly sermon from Trinity Reformed Church in Bloomington, Indiana. To find more great content, please check out our website at trinityreformed.org. Enjoy the sermon. Good morning. This morning I'm going to do something very different, which is I'm going to read you a chapter from the book. We've, Mary Lee and I have been working on a book on uh, marriage and. It's probably not your usual marriage book. One of the chapters, for instance, is about how Scripture commands that the husband's not to go to war for the first year after marriage, and it says that the reason he's not allowed to go to war is why? So that he will make his wife happy. And so there's a chapter on the duty of men to make their wife happy the first year of marriage and what that means. Well, any of you heard of a marriage book that does that? Then another book is about how the husband is commanded in Scripture to leave and cleave. It's interesting. It's not the wife. It's the husband who's commanded to leave his family and cleave to his wife. That's interesting. So anyhow... One of the chapters is a chapter that comes out of Mary Lee's and my experience of God's work in our life. And, you know, normally we'll go through a text of Scripture and open up this word, this phrase, and make our way through Romans. But at times in Scripture, the Apostle Paul will actually stop and tell the story of his life. He'll stop and give a testimony And so I want you to look at this as a combination of Scripture commands and personal exhortations and stories from me. Now, one other thing. I preached this chapter as a sermon up at Clearnoad in Indy about three months ago. It's been written for about nine months. And so none of you have to take it personally. Okay? But because I'm your pastor... I have thought about all of you, and I have decided now you need this sermon, and I want every one of you to take it personally. You get that? It's kind of on the one hand this, but on the other hand that. Um, One of the main reasons I'm preaching it is I'm very concerned about those of you who are young and have recently been married or will be getting married soon. I don't believe that anything will have the impact on your life that your church will. Those of you this morning that graduated from high school, nothing, it will have the impact on your life than the place you choose to feed from the word of God when you leave this place. And so here it is. The previous chapter has been talking about the husband's duty to leave his father and mother and cleave to His wife. And so I I start in by saying it might help new husbands to leave their mother, their mama. Okay. If they remember that the church is every Christian's mother. We all want mothers on the battlefield, grown men cry out for their mothers. I was I never knew this until I hit a guardrail on 37 years ago. And it was in real messy, uh, slushy snow. And I lost control of my little Honda Civic. And I knew what was about to happen. And I didn't know what would happen after what happens, what was going to happen would happen. And all of a sudden I heard my voice go, Mother! <laughs> I was like, what? <laughs> Where did that come from? We all want mothers. On the battlefield grown men cry out for their mothers. Mothers are precious and God gives us one. But not the Blessed Virgin Mary. Rather the mother God provides for his people is the church. Galatians four twenty six to twenty eight, but the Jerusalem above is free. She is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, barren woman who does not bear. Break forth and shout, you who are not in labor. For more numerous are the children of the desolate than of the one who has a husband. And you, brethren, like Isaac, are children of promise. So all of us with each other, our brothers and sisters, we're not friends. Because God has arranged for the church to be our mother and God has adopted us as our father. Who is the Jerusalem from above? Who is our mother? She is the household of faith. She is the church of the living God, the bride of Christ. Ephesians 5, 25 to 27, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. As God is our true father from whom all fatherhood gets its name, so the church is our true mother. Here are John Calvin's words from five centuries ago calling us to love and cling to this mother. Quote, but because it is now our intention to discuss the visible church, Let us learn, even from this simple title, Mother, how useful, indeed, how necessary it is that we should know her. For there is no other way to enter into life unless this mother conceive us in her womb. Give us birth, nourish us at her breast. And lastly, unless she keep us under her care and guidance, until putting off mortal flesh, we become like the angels. Our weakness does not allow us to be dismissed from her school until we have been pupils all our lives. Furthermore, away from her bosom, one cannot hope for any forgiveness of sins or any salvation. God's fatherly favor and the special witness of spiritual life are limited to his flock, so that it is always disastrous to leave the church. Unquote. <clears throat> and then, similarly, Martin Luther, the reformer five centuries ago, and you have to stop and think about what the church was like. What was the church at the time of Martin Luther and John Calvin? How much sin did it have? What was the scandal associated to her name? And Martin Luther says, Therefore, he who would find Christ must first find the church. How should we know where Christ and his faith were if we did not know where his believers are? And he who would bring anything of Christ, who, who would know anything of Christ, must not trust himself, nor build a bridge to heaven by his own mental capacity, his own reason, but he must go to the church, attend, and ask her. Now, the church is not wood and stone, but the company of believing people. One must hold to them and see how they believe, live, and teach. They surely have Christ in their midst, for outside of the church there is no truth, no Christ, and no salvation. Protestant church confessions repeat this truth stated succinctly by the church father Cyprian way back in the third century, 17 centuries ago. And he says this, he says, quote, you cannot have God for your father unless you have the church for your mother. Unquote. And so if the Lord is going to be the builder of your house, you must love and obey him. And you must give yourselves and your family to his things and to his people. We must not trust ourselves to build a godly marriage and home by our own reasoning. Rather, we must go to the church, ask her help, and listen to her as she cares for us through her teaching, preaching, and pastoral care. Now, about Mary Lee and me. (laughs) Our marriage began with a search for a church. After a honeymoon, we'd moved to Madison, Wisconsin. We began to visit Sunday morning worship services at Bible-believing churches. We were repenting of our many sins, and we did not want to start married life cut off from the people of God and from the preaching of his word. And so we searched and we searched, But we did not find a church home that was suitable for us. One church had an altar call at the end of each sermon. That wasn't what we wanted. Another church had this or that we didn't like. And so it went, until one Sunday afternoon, as I was reading Dietrich Bonhoeffer's little book, Life Together, I was astounded that Bonhoeffer was talking to and rebuking me and us. So I called to Mary Lee. She was out in the living room. And she came, she laid down on the carpet in our hallway between the bedrooms and the bathroom and the kitchen. Thin hallway, carpeted. She laid down there with me. Not next to each other. I was on this side, on this side of the hallway. And she laid with her feet next to me and her head up. Now, why am I telling you that? I'm telling you that because I remember. I remember every detail. That generally is true of times in your life when God changes everything. All right? And she laid down, and I read this to her, okay? Quote, innumerable times the whole Christian community has broken down because it had sprung from a wish dream. The serious Christian set down for the first time in a Christian community is likely to bring with him a very definite idea of what Christian life together should be and to try to realize it. But God's grace speedily shatters such dreams. Just as surely as God desires to lead us to a knowledge of genuine Christian fellowship, so surely must we be overwhelmed By a great disillusionment with others. Now, I'm gonna stop there for a second, all right? And ask you, are you disillusioned with others? I'm gonna ask you, are you disillusioned with your wife? Are you disillusioned with your husband? Disillusioned with your friends? I'm going to ask you, are you disillusioned with your pastor? You're disillusioned with the women of this church, with the other kids and how they've treated your child. You're disillusioned with Southern Baptists today, with Presbyterians. You see... Right now, I'm not having any problem with you because everybody's going to say, yeah, I'm pretty disillusioned right now. And I can think of a whole lot of people, including the people sitting right next to me, that I'm disillusioned with. I mean, as we get older, we get more appreciative also. But I mean, I think if you ask Mary Lee, is she disillusioned with Tim? I think you could find some sympathy in, in, in any criticism you came up with about me. And I know you all have them because... I hear them all the time. Now, listen, the reason I stopped right here is watch Bonhoeffer's progression. I mean, I wasn't having any trouble owning what he was saying at this point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I have certain standards for the church and it's and It's all, all kind of preaching. Yeah. Just as surely as God desires to lead us to a knowledge of genuine Christian fellowship, so surely unless we be overwhelmed by a great disillusionment with others. All right, we're all there. Okay. With Christians in general. Yeah, yeah. And if we are fortunate with ourselves. You know, I remember that letter that you wrote, Scott back when you were first married. Oh, oh. If I've ever seen a letter in which a husband is decimated by a wife, <laughs> it was that letter. I think, I think it's fair to say she was disillusioned with you, you know. <laughs> and I just got a kick out of it that it wasn't written to me. I felt so relieved. <laughs> I remember another time when Rebecca... Um, Uh, wrote something, and Mary Lee read it to me. She'd written it to Mary Lee, and when when Mary Lee got done reading it, I said, I certainly hope Rebecca never writes a letter about me. (laughs) You know? Listen, the question we all need to ask ourselves is not whether or not we can see other people's failures, right? Right? The question is whether... We're disillusioned with ourselves, right? I have one person agreeing with me. (laughs) By I'm concerning it with Bonhoeffer. By sheer grace, God will not permit us to leave, even for a brief. A brief period in a dream world, every human wish dream that is injected into the Christian community is a hindrance to genuine community, and it must be banished if genuine community is to survive. He who loves his dream of a community more than the Christian community itself becomes a destroyer of the latter, even though his personal intentions may be ever so honest and earnest and sacrificial. God hates visionary dreaming. And that was the statement that just swayed me. And why I called Mary Lee to come in. I realized that was me. God hates visionary dreaming. It makes the dreamer proud and pretentious. The man who fashions a visionary ideal of community demands that it be realized by God, by others, and by himself. He enters the community of Christians with his demands. He sets up his own law. He judges the brethren and God himself accordingly. He stands adamant, a living reproach to all others in the circle of brethren. He acts as if he is the creator of the Christian community, as if his dream binds men together. When things don't go his way, he calls the effort a failure. When his ideal picture is destroyed, he sees the community going to smash. And so he becomes, first, an accuser of his brethren, then an accuser of God, and finally the despairing accuser of himself. Do you remember that Jesus says, judge not lest ye be judged? Remember that. What we don't ever think of is the fact that the judgment that he's warning us against is our own judgment of ourselves. You judge everybody else, guess what you're going to do? You're going to judge yourself. Now, I'm going to do something that's not in the book here. Um, And I'm not going to identify the man, but I'm going to tell you a story. In the first service, I identified the man because the man's son was sitting here, but I won't identify him in this service. We had a man that my introduction to him when I came to Bloomington was that I got an anonymous letter, and the anonymous letter was piercing in its judgments of all pastors, but it was personal to me. I always said that you should always read anonymous letters, but never let anybody know that you read them. That way you get the benefit of the criticisms, but you don't give them any encouragement to be cowards. Right? And this one nailed me. It didn't nail me perfectly, but this one showed somebody who had great spiritual sensitivity and awareness of the Word of God. Okay? And later I found out that, in fact, this letter had been written by this man. And this man at that time would never come to church. He was always with the children. You'd see him leave before the sermon. And uh, the little kids loved him. He loved the little kids. And it seemed to be a good arrangement, except that he never sat under the preaching of the word. Time went on, and this man... uh, left that church was in this church, and he would come to services fairly regularly until we began to have uh, contemporary instruments in the service, which at the beginning only meant that we had Nick Nugent playing a classical guitar with every single chord changing every note, because that's what you had to do to not conflict with the people singing four-part harmony in this church. So you had two baby grands, and then you had Nick going, you know, and so, yeah, and so it was interesting because it was a contemporary instrument. I had to plead guilty to that, but it was played as if it were an organ, you know. In other words, there was no problem singing parts. We weren't going, you know, electronic. But that was enough that he stopped coming to church fairly regularly, and it grieved me, but, you know, I didn't know what to do, so then one Sunday, his son, not the son here, another son, he, began, he was going to preach, well, this son had been through a lot of difficult things, and he was a good preacher, and I wanted his father to approve of him, you know, don't you often find yourself wanting sons to have their father's approval, you know? Is that really so difficult? Could we have sons approving, being approved? So, anyhow, I saw this man walking out right before the sermon. So I went over in the door of the church and I said, let's call him John. I said, John, don't. Why are you leaving? Your son is about to preach. Would you please stay? Stay. Listen to your son, sit under his preaching. It will be good. and he needs to know that you approve of him. And how do you think his father responded? His father responded by looking at mans. "He doesn't need my approval. He needs God's approval." And he left. After a few, another year or two, this man simply stopped coming to church. We still had a good relationship with him. Went and visited him. His wife came. One Sunday, it was Easter. It was a glorious Easter day. I gave the benediction, then went out to the door to greet people as they left. And he would always come, drop his wife off, and then go home. Then he'd come back and pick her up. So he was out there sitting in his car and he had his window open. So I went over to his window and I I leaned in and I looked at him, gave him a big smile. It was Easter morning. And I said, John, I said, isn't it wonderful that you have such high principles that you refuse to worship with the people of God on this Easter Sunday? And of course... I tell you, we had a good relationship. And so he looked at me and kind of laughed. He could see the humor, you know, that his principles had somehow, you know. A few years later, he got close to dying. And he died. My father always said that you die the way you live. And he died the way he lived. Because what happened was he began to get closer and closer to himself with his criticisms and judgments and harshness, okay? And it was sad. Uh, I tried to help with some of it and maybe helped a little bit with his, uh, one of his sons. But then, at the very end, I went to visit him. And, and I said, John, it is so sad that you are sitting here Without the benefit of the people of God. Why? Well, did you hear what Bonhoeffer said? He said when his ideal picture is destroyed, he sees the community going to smash. John had judged Christ's bride, he judged them. All right? And then he says, so he becomes first an accuser of his brethren. He'd been doing this for decades. Then, an accuser of God, and I don't want to address that. And finally, the despairing accuser of himself. So, you think about this. And I said to John, John, it's so sad because here you are at the end of your life and you see all your sins. Because if there's one thing you see at the end of life, (laughs) it's your sins. And I said, but you don't have any Christians loving you and giving you hope. And so here you are with nobody to defend you from your own harshness and to love you. I want you to think about that, man. an awful lot of what God gives us through the church is brothers and sisters and sons and daughters who love us despite our sin and who show us visibly, personally, emotionally the love of God for us despite our sins because that's the attribute of the God who is there. He is a God who forgives sins. picking up the chapter. And so as I write today, I say this eight months ago, as I write today, the church is divided over COVID and people are switching churches over it. And this will change and not too long from now, it'll be something else. I've lived through a lot of these things that people use to judge and to switch churches over. This isn't a family-centered church. People here don't homeschool. No one here has any of their kids in public school. I feel alienated. The church uses wine for the Lord's Supper. The church uses grape juice for the Lord's Supper. They have women serving communion. They don't have any women serving communion. People wear masks during singing and worship. You know... you you, you might be surprised to know my sister came, worshiped with us. We had communion that Sunday. We went home, we sat in the study, and she looked at me, and she, she said, Timothy, I will not come back to your church until you have women up front serving communion. I looked at her, I said, you know, Deborah, it's not something we've overlooked. It's actually a principle. Isn't it amazing how liberal people think we just are stupid? Have you ever noticed this? They think what we do is just by habit, never by conviction. And by the way, yes, I have taken communion from a woman serving it. Listen, you have no idea all the things that people judge me about and people judge you about and people judge our elders about and people judge our older titus, people judge our music. I've heard it all. There's no lack of judgment. But the redeeming value of this church is there's so much love to cover the multitude of sins. This is love that oozes out you, of you as a congregation. It's not that you lack judgment. So, I've lived through these things. As Bonhoeffer put it, the man who fashions a visionary ideal of community demands that it be realized by God, by others, and by himself. He enters the community of Christians with his demands, sets up his own law, and judges the brethren and God himself accordingly. So, here's the question (laughs) Are you ready? Is this you? Is this you? Is it? Mary Lee and I realized, now listen to me carefully. Mary Lee and I realized Bonhoeffer had our, you want to say it? Number. (laughs) You know. (laughs) He had our number. And so we, now this is a complicated concept. Repent it. We repented. We did not think to ourselves, where does this guy get off thinking he has the right to speak to us about our sin? We didn't stiff arm his rebuke. We didn't resent him for telling us the truth. We didn't grow bitter against him. There was another option, another road less traveled, and we took it. We repented. we realized that we should be grateful for the church and for her care. We shouldn't judge her, and thus we chose a church and stuck with her until several years later we moved from Madison to Boulder, where we joined First Presbyterian Church, and then to Boston for seminary, where we gave ourselves to First Pres in South Hamilton the three years that we lived there. The churches in Madison, in Boulder, and Boston had weaknesses, but all three of them were blessings to us Those first years of marriage as we build our household. Now, how? How were they blessings to us? Well, they loved us. They taught us. They prayed for us. They preached to us. They fed us. They admonished us. They encouraged us. They fed us the Lord's Supper and the Word. One happy memory is Professor Charles Schoffel at First Pres in South Hamilton getting up early every Tuesday morning and driving to the church house where he prepared breakfast for the men who came to the early morning Bible study and prayer group. And then there were the many meals we ate in restaurants and in the homes of church members at each of the three churches. Reformed Church in Madison hired us to clean the church and allowed us to care for their high school children leading their youth group. First President Boulder hired us, putting me to work teaching an adult Sunday school class, training their lay counselors, helping with their junior high youth groups, starting a small group, serving in other ways on their pastoral staff. As we left, they affirmed our pastoral gifts, taking us under care and supporting us financially through seminary. First President South Hamilton allowed me to serve a pastoral internship among them, meeting each week with the pastor, leading worship, and providing my first opportunity to preach. But prayer. What would Mary Lee and I have done without confession of sin and brothers and sisters in Christ praying for us? Due to the sins of both husband and wife, You listening, Jerry and Lee? You listening? They just got married. Welcome. Due to the sins of both husband and wife, all weddings are followed with difficulties. And Mary Lee and I were no different. Every marriage is between two sinners. As I pointed out repeatedly in this book, Mary Lee and I were that. Sinners, that is. Both of us were stubborn Both of us were feminists, both of us were very selfish, I had a temper, and Mary Lee, shall I just put it this way, wasn't so much submissive. (laughs) Both of us had long been flirts, and that was very dangerous at the start of marriage. You, You don't just turn off patterns of sin. Once you're married. And although flirting is always sin, flirting in the first years of marriage can be fatal to your marriage and to your soul. Mary Lee and I were countercultural punks. We call them hipsters now. And had pierced ourselves before anyone else was doing it. Living in San Diego, I'd seen an old sailor standing outside his store downtown every day when I was taking the work mail to the post office. He'd stand there in front of his jewelry store, big barrel chest, silver hair, goatee, arms crossed across his chest surveying downtown San Diego, and he had a golden cross in his ear. Well, I thought that he was pretty much a perfect expression of manhood, right? He looked to me to be a real man, and so I decided to get my ear pierced so I could look like a real man too. Mary Lee worked for a jewelry store in San Francisco's cannery, piercing customers' ears, and one day she pierced her nose and started wearing a diamond stud. Afterwards, the next time she saw her dad, he took his forefinger and said, you have something on your nose. And he tried to scratch the stud off her nose with his fingernail, you know. (laughs) I drove an old Volkswagen Bug. I had spent years pushing, hopping in, and letting out the clutch to start it. And the reason I did that was it was the first year of 12 volt, and the differential and the starter didn't match up. So you could fix it by, by grinding it, but then it would go bad. And I just got tired of paying the money. But if you are working in downtown San Diego, how do you start a car? Well, you have to be headed downhill. How can you be sure you're headed downhill when you have parallel parking Downtown, well, you have to park at the end of the parking, which, of course, is always prohibited, you know, but I wouldn't have been able to start my car unless I had always found spots that I could basically get in, so my car was filled with parking tickets. Mary Lee had a perm. I hated it. My hair was down to my shoulders. And so there we both were, pieces of work. Are you with me? And these churches loved and accepted us. And then they prayed and they prayed for us. Dear reader, unless the Lord builds the house, the builders labor in vain and so pray without ceasing. Never stop confessing your sins to other Christians and asking them to pray for you. You want God to build your marriage and household, so plead for his help and get others to plead with him in your behalf. I don't know that I've told you this story, but because my father was out on the road all the time when I was a teenager, he wasn't home. And when he was home, He wasn't home. (laughs) And so when Joseph, our oldest, reached the age of becoming a man, I looked at Joseph and I thought, I was absolutely in despair. I was absolutely in despair. I had not a clue how to be a father to Joseph. (laughs) And so do you know what I did? I went to Tim Wegner, and I confessed it, and I said, Would you please pray for me? You need to know that the church is a conglomeration of very sinful and very weak people. And listen, brothers and sisters, most of you know your weakness, and the remedy that God has for that is brothers and sisters in Christ. Christ. I can, I'll never forget. This isn't in the book, by the way. You're not paying for this part, okay? But I'll never forget. I have never been a good prayer person. And then Michael had Valerie Bellotto home on missionary furlough. And she taught her that year. And that year, Michael began to believe in prayer. And I remember being so thankful that God had sent a godly person who had strengths where I was pathetic. You know, your parents don't have what you need, actually. They don't. (laughs) You have to get it from other brothers and sisters in Christ. And that's good because it humbles your parents. And actually, your husband doesn't have everything you need, wife. (laughs) And that humbles you because you have to go to other people. And it's not bad to be dependent on other people. That's what God makes the church to be. Now, I'll go back to what you've paid for, okay? All right, here we go. So, plead for his help and get others to plead with him in your behalf. This is very simple, this is very hard. Mary Lee and I found a prayer group that met each week at Covenant Presbyterian Church in Madison. It was led by a godly older couple named Elmer and Mitzi McMurray. Eight to ten of us attended faithfully each week, and although all of us believed in prayer, it was hard to be the dirty ones who had real prayer requests for real sins every single week. All the other requests were things like the healing of the gammy leg of somebody's neighbor or aunt, you know? Or that work will go better. Full stop. (laughs) Pray that work will go better, you know? Which I guess is a real prayer request, but one wonders whether it's the boss, it's the management, or maybe the employee, (laughs) you know, you never really know. We knew we were the project for the rest of the group, young and edgy, with lots of sins, apparent and otherwise, confessing our personal sins and asking for prayer each week. I remember being tempted to resent the absence of any confessions or requests for prayer for sins coming from anyone else. But God directed us to keep going, to keep confessing our sins and keep asking for prayer, humbling though it was. We obeyed. The people of God there loved us, and we saw God answer their prayers for us as we began to grow and to put some sins behind us, moving on to concentrate on others, <laughs> which is the normal Christian life. You know, you exchange some sins for others. That's, we call that sanctification. Okay? Sanctification is humiliating and painful. Sanctification is lifelong And oh, how glorious it is to begin ever so slowly to grow in our family likeness to the church's bridegroom, to our Lord Jesus Christ. Do not ever forget, in his word, God warns that sanctification can never be separated from salvation. You must have it because scripture commands us to, quote, pursue sanctification without which no one will see the Lord, it says, unquote. No, sanctification doesn't save us. But without sanctification, no one will see the Lord. And so from the very beginning of marriage, fight your sin. And for this fighting, there is no substitute for the church of Jesus Christ. Her feeding, her admonishments, her worship, her preaching, her cleansing through the water of baptism and the milk of the word her fellowship around the Lord's table, where you hear that eternally helpful warning, God's servant, your pastor, each time the church gathers around his table, he says to you from 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-seven to 32, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself, and in so doing. De- He is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup, for he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick and a number asleep. But if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned along with the world. (laughs) A wonderful statement about the church. So life is serious business. In Hebrews 9:27, Scripture declares, quote, "It is appointed unto men once to die, but after this the judgment." Unquote. Today, you and your wife are living in the light of God's fatherly care for you and your children, and He Himself is the one who is appointed that you care that care that you and your family desperately need come from him through the worship fellowship and care of the church. He has appointed her to be your mother. Life is short, eternity follows, and so make haste to prepare yourself, not failing to help your precious wife to prepare herself also. You have to teach your wife to love the church marriage does not trump the church. It's probably the most scandalous thing in the church in America today. Everybody thinks that the church trumps the home. What do you think Jesus was saying when he said, hate your father, mother, your husband, your wife, your brother, sister? Does that establish the order? Yes. It is the church that is more important because it is the bridegroom of Christ. And the truth is, if you want to save your family and you want to save your marriage, focus on the church. No man with a biblical understanding of the glory of Christ's bride and his wife and his families and his own desperate need for her help and for her cleansing, will ever forsake the assembling of ourselves together, as some are in the habit of doing. The Christian would rather miss the Super Bowl than Lord's Day worship. Even if he's dying of cancer, I said to Charlie as we walked in, I said, you're in the sermon. Even if he's dying of cancer, the believing man will go to church joining God's people in worship in anticipation of that day almost upon him when he will be gathered together with all the saints praising God together with his holy angels. Remember John Dunn's little poem? Since I'm going to that heavenly place where with thy choir... I'm paraphrasing it, I will sing forever. Tune my lips here at the door that what I am to do there, I do here before. And you just see Charlie doing that every single Sunday. Faithful reader, you may have been raised to think that some people need the church and other people of a more superior breeding and moral virtue don't that some people need the rebukes of the pastors, elders, and older women, but the better sort of people live above such dependency, making it mostly on their own, except maybe for baptisms, weddings, and funerals. They're on a largely self-directed journey to heaven. They know how to manage their own finances better than the church manages finances for sure. They know how to run their own businesses. They know how to run their own family, their own home, and so they certainly don't need any man's help with their soul. They certainly don't need advice raising their children. They don't sin, so they don't need anyone to confess their sin to asking for prayer. They don't doubt. They aren't bitter. They don't steal. They have the libido under control. They don't argue. They don't even get angry. Except it's things everyone should be angry about. Now, you know it's a joke, right? I'm making a joke. Because people that say they're not angry often are shouting at you when they say that. Right? You've noticed this. I am not angry! And so, you know, people in the church, I don't have anger problems. You know? All right. You don't have anger problems. But you are angry that other people aren't angry about the things you're angry about. But you're not angry about them. But you think other people should be angry about how angry you, about the things you think you should be angry about, right? We resist the tyrants. Oh yeah, I haven't noticed because you're a tyrant, and I don't see any self-resistance, self-discipline, or humility. Oh, that's not the tyrant you're talking about. Okay, I I got it. I got it. I got it. Have you noticed how we despise authority today? We all want churches with potlucks in living rooms and pastors in the pulpit. (laughs) Are you with me? You see where I'm headed. Potlucks in the living rooms, pastors in the pulpit. We don't want pastors in the living rooms. We don't want elders in our kitchen. We don't need any older woman speaking to us about our motherhood or our housekeeping or our immodesty. Listen, I'm going to tell you those who think these things that I've just listed are fools. There's no better word than fools, they're just fools. Every believer and his wife and children desperately need the church Sundays and Mondays and Tuesdays and Wednesdays and Thursdays and Fridays and Saturdays when they prepare again for worship and fellowship the next day, Sunday. Listen. The minute Adam died, I'm sorry, but I'm processing my life through Adam's death now, and so you're going to have to live with it. You might have to leave the church so you don't have to think about him dying anymore, but... The minute Adam died, I'm thinking to myself, oh no, that, that beautiful big house, what on earth? You know, that house defined Adam's existence, you know? Fixing it, fixing it up, planning it, cutting it, planning for it, and then I thought, to myself, you know, I think yikes. I think maybe yikes. I didn't want to say it. didn't want to think it. And then I found out that Dawn had made a decision that in a while she was going to move and sell the house. And I was flabbergasted. You know, I was flabbergasted. I didn't even hear about it directly from her. I heard about it from, I don't know who it was, maybe Janet or Mary Lee or Grace Halsey, maybe, one of them. And so I said to them, why? And they said, because she knows she's going to need the church more and she wants to be closer. (laughs) Isn't that pathetic? How weak that woman is. Dawn? Seriously? How strong she is. What a strong woman to be willing to make such a painful decision. Are you all with me? Huh? So this is not a story about anybody at this church making any decision for dawn. This is a story about a woman of God who has given me strength my whole time in Bloomington. You all know that. And typically, she has faith to love the church. And she knows she needs the church's help. And she thinks, you know, I better get closer to the church so it's more convenient for people to help. (laughs) Listen, it's stuff like that that godliness is made up of. That's not a life decision. That's a sanctification decision. Do you understand this? It's possible some readers think I write this because I'm a pastor, and if people don't come to church, I don't get to collect the offering and keep a lot of it for myself. Right? But no, dear one, without the church, we die. And I am not a pastor because I don't know how to work with my hands. And I'm not a pastor because I don't want to work with my hands. As a matter of fact... That's what I enjoy. As a matter of fact, I don't enjoy you. (laughs) I mean, if you think about it, I've never told any of you that I enjoy you. What do I always say? I love you. I have, as, as pastors have happened to them, I have had my share of both men and women tell me that if I keep preaching the way I'm preaching that they will stop paying me and I have had the joy of knowing the truthfulness of what I'm about to say and I look at them and I say you think that if you stop paying me that I'll shut my mouth but I won't because I don't open my mouth because I get paid I open my mouth because I love Christ And I'm gaga for his church and for the salvation of souls and for repentance. Every pastor, every elder, every older woman lives for repentance. Nothing gives us greater joy. So, no, I haven't said these things because I'm a proprietor of a nonprofit religious organization that is 501c3. <laughs> you know, that's what you do. <laughs> you know, you're 501c4. Oh, I'm sorry. Okay. All right. <laughs> oh, my dear brothers and sisters. Uh, what a. This isn't in the book, obviously, but what a precious gift God has given us. Because God has surrounded us as a church with men and women who love us in our sin and help us. How brutal it's been to lose Adam. And think about all the times this last year that you have missed him, wanted him. And I mean, it's everywhere among us. And then think about how brutal it is for his family. And we have a great debt of gratitude to God and to Adam to pay with these children and their mother. You know, I'm not saying any of the rest of you don't have difficulties, but what a wonderful thing to see the glory that God has given us in this church by him taking away one of the most glorious parts of our existence together as a bride of Christ. And what man would not give his life to love this, this 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 beautiful church? Mary Lee and I read in God's Word that the church has been given us by God to be our mother, and we have now found it true. Throughout our long lifetimes. A love. We have been loved. We have been cared for. We have been taught by the church. This church. And we want to pay it forward. Right into the grave. And into entry into the kingdom of heaven. Jesus loves his bride. We love her too. Several times I've had to tell people that I wasn't actually doing this for money, but for love. Now, one last thing before we close this chapter, okay? Years back, I heard a pastor say that the best predictor of perseverance in Christian life was a lifelong commitment to the church. Now, of course, there are times when we have to leave a church and find another, Sometimes we move. I remember one year as a church when we were first starting, because it's a university community, I remember one year when we lost one quarter of the people of the church. One quarter. There are other times when... So we move sometimes. Sometimes the church moves. Sometimes the church moves into heresy. But putting such occasions aside... Think of all the times that you have wanted to leave your church because you or your wife were bitter or angry or hurt or ashamed at your sin known and seen by the assembly of believers or maybe just seen and known by the elders and pastors. Think of all the times you've wanted to leave because people in your congregation don't agree with you on gluten or bread making or masks Don't do it. Do not jeopardize your own soul and the souls of your wife and children in order to save face. Do not jeopardize your salvation in order to satisfy your own preferences on secondary matters like frequency of communion, psalm singing, or musical instruments used to lead the praise of the people of God. Since hearing this older pastor make this observation of the connection between church commitment and spiritual life, I have seen it prove true over and over again. And now I add my own agreement to it. Sometimes Mary Lee and I go through the list of those who have left the church angry, ashamed, bitter, proud, or condemning. And we begin to name their children who are living in flagrant sin without any fruit of true faith. We don't do it often because it's so very sad. Many times one of the elders or pastors warned the father or mother of the consequences of their pride and bitterness and judgmentalism, but to no avail. And it's shocking to see how many of these families have now gone through three, four, and five other churches after leaving us. Listen to this statement and remember it. The only currency of church life is forgiveness. The only currency of church life is forgiveness. And let's face it, almost always, it is a refusal to receive forgiveness or to give it that causes us to leave the church we promise to love and serve. And this must not be. God has forgiven you. How can you refuse to forgive your brother or sister in Christ? How can you refuse to confess your sins to man when you say you've confessed them to God? If you have left a church... You are still bitter about, stop and consider this warning our Lord gave us, quote, for if you forgive others for their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. As I was getting ready to preach this morning, I noticed that this had been put up on a social media page of a friend of ours who is a pastor up in um, near Muncie. And so I want to close by first reading the quote from the book. He, he gave a quote from a book. And here's the quote he put up. Quote, If you have trouble loving the church, if a church has failed you in the past and you refuse to love and give yourself to the church now, if you talk contemptuously about The institutional church. If you refuse to become a church member, if you say you won't join any church because you submit to Jesus alone, if you attend a megachurch where you're neither known nor loved, if you attend a church where the pastor gives a lecture and knows no more about you than your dental hygienist does, then don't lie to yourself. You don't love the church any more than a wife who is hurt by her husband and spends the rest of her life refusing intimacy with him. When we turn from intimacy with the church, we must realize our Lord himself has not done so. Will you repent and begin to give yourself to the church? That's the end of the quote. Now then... Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. You cannot build your marriage and home without Jesus. He has given you his church for that help. I warn you, do not despise it. She is your mother. Let's pray. Father, would you give us love for your bride? Would you protect this particular church, Lord? Would you continue to pour out on us blessings like Adam? And like dawn, would you give us faithful shepherds, faithful deacons, faithful older women, and Father, would you give to each of our servants who lead us the submission and affection and love which every leader needs to do their difficult job. May we be found safe at the marriage feast of the Lamb, we pray in Jesus' name.